Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Welcome back to family, getting to like the people you love. We've already spoken of the difference between existing and living about making life more exciting and existence less significant, which releases you to um, live more fully and thereby allow others into your life more fully. But in this talk, which was given in uh, Chabad of the Valley in, in Tarzana, we pursue the idea a little further. Life is exciting, part two. In what way do we dismiss our existence? How does that affect our relationship with our parents, with our spouses, with our children? What is teenage rebellion all about, and how does the difference between living and existing explain it? And how can we help them go through their metamorphosis of coming into their own without destroying everybody around them? This was the talk, and this is what it sounded like. The problem, before we attack the solution, is that there are occasions in which people don't like the ones they love. I love you, but I don't like you. I'm sure there are circumstances in which you like people, but you don't love them. Times when you can't live with people who you can't live without. So they call it a love-hate relationship, which is strong language, hate But even if it's not love-hate, it's love but not like. And we have to understand how this happens. What does it mean you don't like the person you love? If you don't like them, why do you love them? And if you have reason to love them, why don't you like them as long as you're at it? So what exactly is going on? Let's consider a mystical explanation. What is the obstacle to relationships in general? What's the natural barrier that makes it difficult for two people to get along? Now, of course, there are the practical considerations. There are differences of opinion. People don't get along because they don't agree. And that's why we have different societies and different cultures and different groups that separate themselves from each other because they want to live a certain way according to their own opinion. And since not everybody has the same opinion about how to live and so on. So you're going to have different groups. And the groups don't mingle. They don't get along. They are distant and separate. That's one cause or one possibility. Another possibility is a matter of taste. Our tastes are not the same. We can't agree on tastes. And you also can't argue a taste. You can't debate whose taste is right. It's to each his own. So if you have different tastes, you don't get along very well. And if you don't share the same interests, you don't get along. But none of this explains how you can love somebody and then not like them. Because if you've gotten over all of those obstacles, all those differences, and you do love each other, then then where did the like go? How did that get lost? So there must be a more basic, a more fundamental block that separates people from each other. 
Let's understand this on a philosophical level. The existence of a physical being is defined by one characteristic, one property. What defines and describes the physical existence of anything and everything in creation? What is the definition of physical existence? It takes up space. We've talked about this, but we need to develop the idea some more. If it exists, it takes up space. It takes up room. It occupies its space. This is true of everything in creation. An angel takes up space. A thought takes up space, which is why you can't have two thoughts at the same time, or not very well. An emotion takes up space. That's why you can't have opposite emotions at the same time in the same space, in the same place in the heart, and remain sane, because they occupy their space. Occupying the space simply means that that which exists does not permit for something else to exist in the same place at the same time. A book on a shelf does not allow, does not permit another book in its place. You can have two books, if you can have, two books at the same space and the same spot on the shelf, then those are not physical books. There's something divine. It's miraculous. Because physical law says that every physical thing takes up its space. And take up space means it doesn't permit anything else. Now, all other characteristics that a physical thing has, for example, fire is hot and it burns, water is cold, it runs downhill, these characteristics are not essential to the existence of the thing. Because a thing can exist in the physical world and not be hot, and most things aren't. A physical thing can exist and not run downhill. Most things don't. So the fact that water runs downhill, this is a secondary characteristic, because water can exist without running downhill. So what is that part of the water running downhill? What is that part of the water that makes it cold, that is being fluid, that is being clear and colorless? What should we call that? We call that the life of the water. It doesn't define its existence. It describes its life, its behavior. Water lives by flowing downhill, by being cold. Fire lives by being hot, by consuming a stone lives by being stationary, hard, heavy, resistant. So all of these characteristics make up the life of the individual objects, whereas what they all have in common, which is their basic existence, is the same for all things, and that is that it takes up space. Fire takes up space, water takes up space, a stone takes up space. Human beings have the same two dimensions, the life of the human being and the existence of the human being. Usually, usually, my life is enhanced by your presence, because life alone is not much of a life. Life for a human being involves others. I can't have a life by myself, but I can exist by myself. In fact, when it comes to my existence, I exist better without you, 
because we can't share the same space. So if you try to exist with me, you're cramping my space. And my existence resists your existence because you also take up space and now you're in my space. So I have a conflict here. For my existence, I wish you would go away. And for my life, I need you to stay. So I love because of what you do for my life, but I don't like because you make my existence uncomfortable. Does this make sense? In other words, the resistance that one person has to another is the very basic fundamental level of our being, and that is that my existence objects to your existence because two physical things cannot occupy the same space. Your existence threatens my existence because one of us has got to go. That's why it's such a miracle that a man and a woman can get married and live under the same roof and not kill each other, either physically or emotionally. And it would seem, if we're looking superficially, it would seem that the only way for a man and a woman to coexist under the same roof is that one of them must give up their existence. Because you can't have two beings taking up the same space, one of them is going to have to surrender. Then it's fine. Then we'll get along famously. Except that the psychologists will tell you that this is a very sick relationship. It's an unhealthy dependency. Because you don't have two people here. You only have one person and, uh, and, a, and a ghost. Ghosts don't take up space. So what's the solution? There are some people who for themselves, in their own lives, in their own existence, are very aware and concerned and involved with their existence. I am. I am. And they're worried about their existence. For some reason, they're not secure about it. And these people have a very hard time liking or loving. They run away. Then there are other people who go to the opposite extreme. They are busy living. They're so in love with life, they're so excited about their life, that they don't even notice their existence. These people can't have enough friends. They want everyone involved. They want to just keep adding friends to their collection. But they don't get married. Because that involves their space, and they're not good at that. They're only good at living. They're not good at sharing their space. These are the people who, even when they do get married, and they might as well not, it's because it doesn't mean anything to them. They're willing to marry anybody, and they act like they're married to everybody, and they treat their spouse the way they treat everybody else, excited about life. Let's do, let's grow, let's work. But what about sharing your space? He has no space. He doesn't know what you're talking about. He's unconscious in that area. They are fun people, yes, but there's no basis to those relationships. Sometimes therapists emphasize that you have to have shared interests. If you both love to play tennis, good relationship. But, but it's not. It's not a relationship at all. It's just having fun. 
So these are two extremes that don't make for a happy marriage. The trick is that we need to soften our existence and deepen our lives. Choose life. Torah says, choose life. Why do we have to be told to choose life? To choose life over death? We don't need to be told that. Well, most of us don't. Most people don't need to be told to choose life over death. So what are we being told when it says, choose life? Choose life over existence. You have a life and you have existence. Where should you be devoted? Where should you be focused? What should be important to you? And what should you be defending, your life or your existence? So Torah says, choose life. Don't get hung up on existence. Existence is your dark side. It's your negative, your heavy side. Existence is heavy because it takes up space. So depression comes from existing, not from life. A person who feels very keenly his or her own existence starts to get depressed. It begins with a little heaviness. Then it becomes a little melancholy. Then it becomes a little cynical. And then it becomes a full-blown depression. Because existence wears you down. It weighs you down. It's a heaviness. And the solution is, lighten up. Don't take your existence seriously, because the truth is that it's not very valuable. It's not very meaningful. It just happens to be that you exist. But what is your purpose? What is exciting about you? your life, your life, what you can do with your existence, not the fact that you exist. Actually, this is good advice even if you're not in a relationship. This is just a good definition of living. Living means you put your energy in what you can do and take away the energy, take out the energy from the fact of your existence. And unfortunately, we're not always taught this. In fact, we're seldom taught this. Because we do take our existence very seriously, much too seriously. Look, what are children taught for the first 10 years of their lives? Or the first 15 years of their lives? What do parents say to their children? What do teachers say to their students? What do adults say to teenagers? If you think about all the things that have been said, they all relate to existence, not to life. They're all about existing. They're all about being safe, about being successful, about self-preservation, about survival. That's existence. It's not life. I'm sure you've heard the story about the two chassidim in Russia. They were in business together, but really... Their, their devotion was to the study of Torah, and they loved to learn. And so they arranged an interesting business. During the summer, they would go to the big city, to Leipzig in Germany, and they would buy materials wholesale. On the way home, they would sell it retail. They would make enough money to live through the winter. And the winter, of course, they would spend studying together in their little village. And that's how they lived for many years. The problem was that one of them had a nasty habit. Having studied together in their little village during the winter, 
they accumulated many questions, and there was no one in the village to ask, things that they didn't understand. They were actually the scholars of the village. So when they would come to Leipzig, where there were other rabbis, this one partner would slip off in the middle of the day to the yeshiva to get his questions answered. The other partner would then go look for him because they were supposed to be doing business. So one time the partner disappears and the other one comes looking for him. Now he knows he's at the yeshiva, but he doesn't want to walk in and disturb the learning. So he stands outside the window and he motions for his partner to come to the window. The partner comes to the window and he says to him, what are you doing? What are you doing? We're here on business. And he says to him, and what's going to be already if we, go, if we do business? He says, we'll buy some material. We'll get some goods, some products to sell. No, and he says, if, and when we already have the wholesale product, what's going to be? He said, then we'll sell it on the way home in the villages and we'll make a profit. No, and after we sell it and make a profit, then what's going to be? He says, then we'll go home and we'll have some money. And his partner says, yeah, and then what? He says, then we'll be able to buy the things we need for the winter to be able to provide for the family. And the partner says, yeah, and then what? He says, why do I have to answer all these questions? What do you mean, then what? Then we'll be happy. The partner says, all that just to be happy? I'm already happy. Leave me alone. All we're taught is how to survive, to make it to the happiness. Once we know how to survive, and we have everything we need to survive, and then what? Oh, then we're going to start thinking about life. It shouldn't be this way. You have to live first, unconditionally. Not if I'll have, when I'll have, when I'll get, then I'll be able to live. This is not life. Choose life means live first. And because you're devoted to living, you'll have to find some way of making ends meet. But not the other way around. So if life is not motivating you, you're not excited about your life, then what is the reason or the point for surviving? Are we taught this? Have you heard this before? How many people can remember something your father or mother told you that was not about surviving, it wasn't about making it, and it wasn't about protecting yourself or being safe? Something about life. My first taste of this distinction, or my first taste of a message about life, came from a Yiddish reader, a school book. We were learning to read Yiddish. We were 10 or 11 years old. And in this Yiddish reader, there was this little story. It was about a boy named Benny. And Benny was going on a hike. And his mother gave him some money to buy something to eat if he should get hungry. Now, this, this is a children's story. So Benny goes on a hike. And soon he finds that he's hungry. So he goes into a store and he buys a roll, which he eats. And he continues on his trip. And he realizes soon that he is still hungry. Goes into another bakery and buys another roll. He eats the roll and continues on his trip and soon discovers that he's still hungry. 
So he goes into a third store, and he buys a roll. And after eating the third roll, he's still hungry. Now he goes into the fourth store, and he buys a bagel. He eats the bagel, and after eating the bagel, he's not hungry anymore. So then he thinks to himself, what a waste of money, what a fool I have been. I should have bought the bagel in the first place. At the bottom of the page in this little reader, there was a question to see if you understand the story. There was a question that you're supposed to answer. The question is, was Benny a foolish boy for having bought the rolls? That's it. That's the whole story. If we would tell our children such stories, they would be indebted to us forever. This story is not about survival. It's not about making it. It's not about being safe. It's not how to invest your money wisely. This is about life. It's about life. You don't regret the earlier experience because now you're finally mature. All those experiences contributed to your maturity. It's not true that if you hadn't bought the rolls and went straight to the bagel, you would be satisfied. The bagel only works after the rolls. So when a person says, why did I have to go through 25 years of misery just to find out? It's because first there are the rolls and then there's the bagel. They work together. See, that's a message or lesson in life, not in existence. And what we need to do is siphon all the energy that we naturally invest in our existence, siphon it off, steal it away, and put it into life. Maybe this explains how, why Yaakov tricked his father-in-law and got all the sheep, tricked his brother and got the blessings, because it was a question of stealing or siphoning energy from where it doesn't belong where, where it would only contribute to existence and have it contribute to life. That's the only place where stealing is allowed, by the way. Steal the energy from your existence and add it to your life. Now, when we teach a child to honor his or her parents, how to honor parents, why to honor parents, now you're teaching them life, not existence. What does humility mean, for example? We talk about humility, the importance of humility. It's all over the Siddur and in the prayers and the davening. We're always saying how meaningless, how insignificant we are. We don't amount to anything. A person's life is, is, is a, a fleeting shadow. It's a dream. But a person who underestimates the value of their life is not being virtuous at all. Here there's no benefit, there is no good, there is nothing right or virtuous about demeaning life, anybody's life. When a person says, my life is meaningless, my life is worthless, that's a sin. Even to say it is a sin. On the other hand, when a person says, my existence is meaningless, that's true. I exist, I don't exist, you're absolutely right. The fact that you exist doesn't enhance the world in any way. You're only taking up space. And if you stopped existing, who would care? There's this comedian who says, you know, my son came out of the closet, which is good because I needed the space. 
I need some closet room. If I didn't exist, it would leave more room for everybody else to exist. So humility, properly understood, doesn't mean to underestimate the quality or the value of your life. It means to be humble and find the insignificance of your existence. That's a good idea. Because the more we humble our existence, the more energy we have for living. And living is enhanced by other people. It's only our existence that is threatened by others. So when we find ourselves in a love-hate relationship, it means, I love you, I can't live without you, because you are indispensable to my life. But I hate you, or I don't like you, because you diminish my existence. So I've got a problem here. What is the solution? The solution is, and this is not just a survival technique, but a virtue, the solution is, instead of having the other person threaten your existence because their existence denies your existence, deny it yourself. Humble yourself. Dismiss your own existence because it's not important. And then the other person's existence won't be threatening at all. It becomes welcome. And then you not only love them, you also like them. You not, not only can't live without them, you can actually live with them. Because now they're not threatening your existence anymore because you've surrendered it. Your existence, not your life. People say, how do I know when I'm ready to get married? How do you ever know when you're ready to get married? One of the ways that we prepare for marriage or get ready to be married is by upsetting the balance between life and existence. If the balance is still there, I'm 50% devoted to my existence, 50% devoted to my life, then don't ruin somebody else's life by marrying them. You're already married to your existence. You are ready to get married when your life has become much more significant than your existence. When you can laugh at your existence, but take full responsibility for your life. Does this make sense, or, or is this too complex? What happens when a person humbles their existence? Automatically, they start to look for others, what they can do for somebody else. When a person finally gets comfortable with the fact that existing is not exciting, all of a sudden they enjoy other people's company. You know, if it's not all about me, well, okay, then let's hear about you. So how do we get to like people? The more we free ourselves, the more we peel away the heaviness of existence, the more we like other people. The more you enjoy your life, the more you welcome other people. The goal is, of course, to like the people you love, which means to make room in your existence for the people you already love. Don't become indiscriminate. Don't become so humble that everyone can walk in and take over your life. That's dismissing your life and making life insignificant. The objective is 
like the people you already love. Make room for the people you love because they enhance your life. Make room for them in your existence as well. And how do you do that? Humble your existence. That's where humility comes in. And that's what humility was created for. There's a strange statement in the Gemara. The sages are sitting in the base medrash in the study hall, and they're listing qualities, characteristics, that have gone from the world. You know, since Rabbi so-and-so died, greatness has gone from the world. Since Rabbi so-and-so died, all scholarship, real, true scholarship, is gone from the world. And since Rabbi so-and-so died, real humility is gone from the world. And one of the sages objected and said, no, no, don't, don't include humility. Humility still exists because I am here. Now, how do we understand this? And this is one of the sages. We're not, we're not talking about just anybody. There is a humility that is basically an inverted form of arrogance. When you take your existence seriously, you're arrogant. When you take your life seriously, you are responsible, delightful, fully alive. If you ask this sage, what is your life all about? His answer would be, my life is about humility. I live with humility. I believe in humility. I work at humility. It's my life. And that's true. It was his life, his life work. And so he said, don't say humility is gone, not while I'm around. But then where is the humility? How can a person say that and still be humble? And again, the answer is, he took his life seriously and the humility was about his existence. His existence he had ignored and dismissed completely. And therefore, his humility was a correct humility, not an inverted arrogance. And so the person who is truly humble, or correctly humble, knows that he is humble, and can say, I am humble. So we're told to be humble, we're supposed to be humble, but then again, if you know you are, if you are aware that you are, are you still humble? Sounds like a catch-22. But now we understand how that works. You dismiss your existence. It's not about me. And if you do that, then you are correctly humble. Now you have a virtue to acquire in your life, a virtue of humility. If you've acquired it, then tell me, then say so. Moshe was the most humble person who ever lived, and yet Moshe said to the people, I'm going to appoint uh, heads or leaders. I can't answer everybody's questions. I'm too busy. I'm going to appoint leaders, wise men, who will teach you and answer your questions. Those wise enough to teach 10, those wise enough to teach 50, those who are wise enough to teach 100, 1,000, 10,000. And if none of them can answer your question, then come to me and I'll answer it. And all the commentaries say, what an arrogant statement that is. And this is the most humble person in the world? And he says the questions that nobody else can answer, you'll come to me and I'll answer. 
So where's his humility? The fact is that Moshe could answer the questions that nobody else could answer because that was his life. He couldn't be humble about that. He had to be honest about that. Where then was his humility? His humility came in the fact that in existence he felt no significance. It wasn't about him. It wasn't about answering the question. It was about life. So the sage in the Gemara is the same way. His humility was not about being humble. It was about the fact that humility is a good way to live. It enhances your life while it diminishes your existence. So that his humility was part of his life, not part of his existence. So the unacceptable, arrogant, and inverted humility is when you're talking about your existence. In very simple terms, can you laugh at yourself? Can you dismiss yourself? Can you blanch your existence away so that you can get to the fruit of life? Then you're ready for a relationship. Then you can like the people you love. If you can laugh at yourself and dismiss yourself, if you can take a joke about yourself, what that means is that you don't take your existence so seriously. And then you are fully alive. So you say to a guy, you know, you're such an idiot. And he falls apart. What did he fall apart over? Because you remind, undermined his existence. Or he, that's how he feels. If he was busy living, if you're involved, for example, in a project and you're trying to get it right, and you say to him, no, you can't do it that way. You're so stupid. It doesn't destroy him. Because life is fluid. Life is flexible. Existence is inflexible. And why are men's egos bigger and more fragile than women's egos? Probably because men take their existence more seriously than women take their existence. So when you're busy, when you're involved in a project, when you're devoted to something important, then you can take the criticism because it helps you in your life. But when you're busy existing, any criticism, any slight criticism is devastating. Now, I don't know if statistically this is correct. I just suspect that it is. If you say to a mother, you know, you're not a very good mother, it hurts, but it doesn't destroy her because not a good mother, a very good mother, a pretty good mother, she's a mother. She's a mother. And because she's a mother, it's not about her. It's about the children. So her mothering is her life, not her existence. With a man, it's a little different. When you say to a man you're a failure as a father, it destroys him. Because to him, it's more about him, not about the children. It's about his existence, and you're threatening his existence. You're diminishing his existence. And existence has no sense of humor. It's not flexible. It can't laugh. Our parents, for example, that's probably the most common example in which we have a love-hate relationship. Can't live with them, can't live without them. In what way do our parents threaten us? 
How do, how do they make us uncomfortable? They control your life? They ruin your life? Not usually. They control your existence. The very fact that your mother is your mother undermines your existence because if she is your mother, then she is everything and you're nothing. Then she exists and your existence comes from her. What is teenage rebellion all about? What's adolescence all about? It's the rebellion against that definition, against that, that fact. I'm just your child. And the rebellion is, no, I'm not. I've got my own existence. I have this argument with teenagers all the time. Every rebellious teenager, when I talk to them, will say the same thing. And I'll say to them, look, why can't you just please your parents? It's so simple. If you do this, it makes them happy. It doesn't cost you anything. Why don't you do it? Of course, they have re principles and reasons. But the bottom line is, I've got my own life to live. And I'm thinking, no, you don't. You don't have a life. What are you talking about? You have no life. You're a kid. You're a spoiled kid. You have a life of your own? You don't even have a pair of shoes of your own. Your mother bought you the shoes. You got your own life? What, in her house? In her room? With her shoes? You have no life? Of course, I only think that. I don't say it. So what are they really talking about? What, what are they really bothered by? It's not their own life that is being threatened by their mother. You don't have a life, so how can it be threatened? Your mother is threatening your existence. You're not a real person. You're just her child. So it's not that you have places to see and people to meet and so on. No, you don't. You just want to exist independent of her. Because dependent on her means that your existence is not the real thing. That's what adolescence is all about. It's not so much about life, it's I am. All right, well, what are you? What are you? What do you stand for? Well, whatever. I'm working on it. One of these days I'll figure out what. But right now, just let me be. I was talking to this girl, body piercing. And I said, you know, that's really ugly. Why do you do that? And she said, I'm expressing myself. I said, I would be very impressed if you were the first one in the neighborhood to do that. Then I would say, yeah, you're expressing yourself. But the fact is that you are the 300th person in your neighborhood to do this. And in fact, if you didn't do it, you would be ashamed to show up in school. You're not being yourself. And to prove it, when it goes out of style and nobody has body piercings, you're going to continue to, wearing, to wear that? Not a chance. It's ugly. So what do you mean, this is you? It isn't you. You have no choice but to do this. And if you had a choice, you would never do anything so ugly. So what are they talking about when they fight for the right to live their own life? They're not talking about life. 
No one ever taught them anything about life. They have no idea what life is. What they're fighting for is existence. Let me be. Well, if you had something to be, I would let you. And you have nothing to be except being itself. There's no virtue to that. You'll just take up more room. And this is exactly what happens. They become intolerant, they become rigid, they become fixed in their own existence. And under those conditions, all decent human relationship is precluded and impossible. And it just deteriorates from there. How do we get along with our parents? How do they not threaten our existence? Again, there's only one solution. Surrender. Surrender. They've got you. No matter how old you get, you will always be their child. You can't win. You have no existence without them, so give it up. If you're a mensch, you will have a life of your own. But existence of your own? You're not going to have it. Surrender. Because they're going to win in the end. I've quoted this many times. Herman Wouk, in his latest book, in the epilogue, he closes the book by saying, I always thought that my Zadie was at the center of my life. Not so. It's Papa. It's always been Papa all my life. All I've ever wanted was to be like Papa. This man is 82 years old, Herman Wouk. 82 years old, a very successful writer, a wealthy man, an important man. And at the age of 82, he discovers, and of course shares with us, some truth about himself. All he wants is to be like Papa. We can't get away from it. We are our parents' children. We will always be their children. And as a child, you have no existence of your own. You owe your existence to them. The laws of honoring parents are fascinating in their depth and in their brilliance. You must serve your parents in menial ways because your existence is not important. Theirs is. Listen to this. Code of Jewish law. Divine wisdom dictates that if your mother and father come to a very important meeting and you're sitting at the head of the table conducting the meeting in your finest clothing in front of the most important people in town, your parents walk in, they hit you over the head, I'm quoting, they spit in your face and tear your clothes. You're not allowed to get angry at them or to show anger. You can take them to court and sue them <laughs> for the damages because, you know, business is business. The brilliance of it is your existence is nothing compared to theirs. And at the same time, they have no right to your life. They own your existence. They don't own your life. So if your mother says, no, you can't marry him, or you uh, should marry the one I choose, you don't have to obey because that's your life. They don't own your life, but they own your existence. So if they have a need and you have a need, their need comes first. This is true life. And if we don't follow that, we're trying to fool Mother Nature. And you can't fool Mother Nature. So if a child says, my existence is just as important as yours, not correct. Wrong answer. My life is as important as yours? True. 
In some ways, the child's life could be even more important than the parent's life. And that's why parents sacrifice their lives so that their children could live or have a better life. But when it comes to existence, their existence is always more significant than ours because ours comes from theirs. So the teenager who's rebelling, if they had the wisdom or if there was some way that we could teach them, they should be told, you're not fighting for your life, you're fighting for your existence, and it's not a worthy battle. You're never going to win anyway. You owe your existence to them, and that's never going to change. So why fight it for 82 years, and then on your 82nd birthday come to the realization, I need my papa. Don't fight it. When you get married, you're surrendering your existence. It's okay. It wasn't a good thing to have in the first place. You should never have existed. You should never have taken your existence seriously. Now, someone will benefit if you surrender your existence. Well, then do it gladly. It was a burden anyway. So stop taking up space. It will help you like the people you love. When you like the people you love, the love becomes a whole new thing. It's so different. The love you have for the people you're supposed to love versus the love you have because you happen to love. There is no comparison.